Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com Mary O'Neill Phillips is someone that you probably are aware of. She is the host of Country Outdoors, but she's a Australian female in the hunting space. She, in my mind, got the most notoriety around the Love and Likes show that was on Outdoor Channel with Matt Buspers. Uh, as I understood, also she got picked up in a huge viral media campaign against her that said, this huntress is addicted to hunting with a big black bear picture. But she's a strong female in the hunting space and Women are the biggest growing demographic in the hunting space. And so I wanted to have a conversation just about her story and why she got into hunting and just a good old-fashioned, authentic, hey, what do you think about hunting? Where are we going? Kind of scenario. So enjoy. So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple, is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to, to non-hunters that it's, it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it? Brittany. My name. My name. Is, <laughs> does my hair look okay? It's fantastic. My name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. Braxton, <laughs> you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Mm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a, a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Yeah, I'm literally about to go back to South Africa, I fly home on, I fly back on Thursday. Um, Christmas? No, I have I don't I I have an aunt left in uh, South Africa. My whole the whole rest of my family lives in Australia. Really? Where? And uh, that's the dark side of my family. You know, the Australian fifty percent Australian, so that's the dark side of my family. My mom's Australian. You know, the better rugby player side. <laughs> Well, technically, if you want to get if you want to get super technical, we did just win the Rugby World Cup. Look, I you, I will never deny South Africa, New Zealand, they're great teams. You know, we've got yeah, we went to 
Uh, I got, I've been to one like overseas rugby world cup before my family and I went over to Ireland and it was the Ireland versus England game in the, in London. And that was pretty spectacular. Yeah. That would be pretty good. It is cool how, you know, there's like, you know, I live in Nashville and my husband didn't grow up with rugby, but it is cool that there's like that common denominator when you meet somebody from one of those countries, automatically you have that bond over football. (laughs) 100%. Yeah. 100%. No, my whole family, my mom is Australian. My mom comes from a big family in Australia. Where? And she's from Sydney. Oh. And she and my my dad lived in Port Stephens for almost 14 years. Nice. And uh, my dad passed away in 2021 in Australia. We only got back last year to put him to rest. Um, But yeah, we got a big family. My brother lives in Sydney now. He's got three boys. I've got two boys here in Memphis, Tennessee, only three hours down the road from you. Gosh, it sounds like we're living like a pretty similar. I'm from a big family as well, one of five. My dad passed away in uh, 2018 from pancreatic cancer very suddenly yeah. within three months. Um, so I, I'm sorry for your loss because I know how much of a dent that leaves on your family and yeah, it's not, yeah, it's yeah. not, lo- losing a parent is definitely something that you just can't prepare yourself for and walking through yeah, that, yeah. it's like, yeah, it's very challenging, I know, so. Where are you from in Australia? So, my, yeah, my family are from Sydney. Um, so we, it's, I, I was very blessed with how I grew up. My family have a house in Bronte by the beach and then we have a small cattle farm um, outside of Goulburn, small town called Crookwell. And so I grew up pretty much weekdays in Bronte and weekends on the farm. So I, I was- Where's Bronte near? Bronte is the eastern suburbs. Um, it is in between Clovelly and um, uh, Bondi Beach, essentially. Okay. Yeah, it's okay. on that. If you ever do, if you ever go to Sydney, anyone listening, there's a great coastal walk called the Bronte to Bondi Walk, and you can walk all along the coast from Bondi Beach all the way to Coogee. It's spectacular. Most beautiful, yep. pristine beaches in the world. Australia is so clean. It's just, it's a gorgeous place to visit. That's an adjective that a lot of people are like, well, describe Australia. And I said, the best way I can describe it is it's America, but clean. Yeah. And that's a really interesting conversation too, because somebody last year said to me, what, how does Australia and the United States differ in terms of conservation effort? And I said, well, over here in the US, sportsmen and sportswomen contribute at huge amount, the, you know, the largest amount monetarily to conservation through hunting. But Aussies just grow up being conservationists without knowing that they are. Where right. we, we grow up knowing it's wrong to leave your garbage in a national park or by the ocean. We have Clean Up Australia Day every year, which is just one day to highlight what we all do every day. But like as a kid, there was a campaign called Don't Be a Litterbug. And it was and it would pretty much be to, you know, blackball anybody who threw garbage on the floor. And that was like I grew up with these, you know, campaigns and sayings, and it's just been ingrained into Aussies' minds that like it's the wrong thing to do to trash the environment. And it's not in a granola cruncher kind of way. It's just like, why would you throw garbage in the water that you're going to swim in and and that you fish in? And yeah, so it's just kind of, it's kind of interesting, the different mind frames. And then, you know, you 
I mean, the pandemic has done the worst, the absolute travesty to uh, Tennessee. I don't know about anywhere else apart from in my travels, but pre-COVID, it was already getting bad. Post-COVID, you can't drive down a freeway without it being covered in garbage. And you see those signs, it's like, adopt a freeway. <laughs> no one's adopting freeways in Tennessee because they are disgusting. I did a clean up Percy Priest Day a couple years ago with some artists in town for um, Conservation Week. And uh, we went down there. There was like 18 of us with giant garbage bags. We filled them up to the brim. We didn't even touch the side. Yeah, there's a big problem. I could go on about this all day. It really rolls me up. It's funny. Uh, when I was a kid, I um, whenever I went to Australia, my grandparents in Australia lived on Newport Beach. Yep. And it was the best childhood when we used to go there because we used to go explore the rocks and the beaches and the waves. And, you know, there was all like um, fossil, there were lots of fossils in the shale there, right on the beach, on the, on the rocks. And we would look for them and little tidal pools and whatnot. And when we went back last year to put my dad to rest, we went by Newport. Yeah. And it was like night and day difference. Oh, like, really? Yeah, it was like when we were kids, it was just like a sleepy yeah. beach town, right? All the little houses, little dilapidated bungalows and whatnot. So, oh, it's expensive. You know, your fish and chip shop down the road, your Chinese shop down the road. Yeah. You know, houses were $200,000, $300,000 houses. And now the houses are like seven mil, oh, eight mil. Yeah. And I, where, so where I grew up in Australia, it's... It was very blue collar. My so my family are fourth generation, fifth now, um, in Bronte. And um it was very blue collar back in the day and the eastern suburbs was considered the rat race of Sydney. Like that's where the blue collar people lived. The wealthy people lived on the northern beaches, the North Shore. Well, at some point when I was in primary school, when I was about ten years old, that did a flip. And the eastern suburbs became the most desirable place. I think of because well, everywhere in Sydney, right? Everywhere. everywhere, anywhere by the water. I mean, not even <laughs> by the water, but anywhere within like a twenty-minute shot of the eastern suburbs or the C- CBD. Um, yeah, and so now, like where we grew up, it's the same thing. Hold on one second, guys. I'm, so th- I have an alarm going off, but I have a good reason behind it. I have a five-month-old baby who I'm starting on food. Oh man! And um. But I was researching, like, what do I? Hey, Google, stop. So I was researching. <laughs> I was researching what, what food I wanted to give her. And it's really, I was like, you know, I don't want to give her sugar, like necessarily sure. fruit from a jar or whatever for the first thing. And I came across this one woman who was feeding her baby bone marrow. And I thought, that's a really great idea because my baby's on uh, cow formula milk. And mm-hmm. it just seemed like, no brainer, her first food to be collagen from also a cow. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I've got like the uh, marrow in the oven right now, which I'm going to pull out and then you whip it into a butter and she absolutely loves it. And it's so good for her full of collagen, vitamins. So and- is the oven on right now and the do you need to right turn now. it off? One sec, I'm just going to turn it off so you don't see the house burning <laughs> out around me. <laughs> well, action packed, absolute live on the podcast <laughs> stove being put off um yeah can't fake this people can't fake it <laughs> if anybody wants the recipe after when this podcast comes out i will share it with you because this is like true this is 
what we're meant to be eating. Get away from that junk food, back to the roots. You're not a big fan of a Big Mac at McDonald's? No, you know, and same thing, like, I mean, you know, growing up in Australia, we don't have... Oh, Maccas. Maccas, yeah. So Maccas, Vicky D's, we used to have Pizza Hut, uh, well, we still kind of do, and KFC, but that's it. Everything is what they call mum and pop over here. It was small businesses everywhere. Mm-hmm. Bobby's very big on supporting small business. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, no, we only, I only ever ate fast food if I was, you know, had a bit of a hangover. When or, did you leave Australia to come to the States? Uh, so I moved over in 2016. I actually went to middle school for half a year in San Francisco. Um, so both my parents were academic, first in their family to ever get a degree, first to go to yeah university, all that stuff. And um, they were doing some research at San Francisco State University. And so we got the opportunity to go to school over here for a while, which was a very interesting opportunity because I came from being in a private girls' school in Sydney to going into, you know, private girls' school, uniform, Catholic school, all that, to going into a very lower middle class public school where I was, there was three white kids. So I was the minority and I'd never experienced that before, but it was such a good experience for me to have as a 13 year old because it just completely took me out of my little Sydney bubble that I'd been in, burst it and opened me up to the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And so the, the reason I asked that is when you talked about food and sort of mom and pop shops in Sydney, my favorite Thai restaurant in the whole wide world is in Sydney. Where? It's called, it was called, it's gone now because I went there, tried to find it the last time we were there. It's gone and COVID must have shut it down. But it was called Stir Crazy. Okay. And it was under the bridge. It was under the Sydney Harbour Bridge right there by Luna Park. Okay. And the prime minister used to get his tie from Stir Crazy. There you go. It was this tiny shop. Like you could sit maybe 15 people total Yeah. in the shop. Yeah. And it was unbelievable. Australia has incredible, you know, we've got this Southeast Asia influence and Asia Pacific. So we have, yeah, we have very good food when it comes to that, that style of food. Every time my husband comes over, that's what we do. We go to, there's a place in Sydney called The Spot in Randwick and there's, it's just a little village with a bunch of different restaurants. There's a restaurant there called Tyrific and it's a BYO wine and they just have the best food. So you came for a year, did school for a year, yep. then went back to Aussie or stayed? Went back, went back to St. Vincent's College in Sydney. Um, the very, I mean, if you could put like a typical private girls' school, terrible, bullying, awful experience from a movie, that was my schooling experience. It was just, yeah, it was a lot. Um, and so went through school. I started working for a family friends law firm while I was in school. So I I always wanted to be an entertainer, always wanted to go into acting, but my parents were academics and they, you know, they were the lifers, the baby boomers that came out and got their jobs and they stayed in those jobs for 40 years plus. And so um, even though they were creative in some ways, no one in my family had ever gone into film and television. I have an auntie who is a quite a famous artist in Australia. She won the Portuguese before and she's, yeah, but no one had gone into that side of the entertainment. And so 
they were really pushing me to get a degree and to do all of that stuff. And so I um, started working for a family friend's law firm when I was in the 11th grade. I left school, went to work for them full time, and then ended up going and working for one of the big firms, you know, in the big smoke. And um, yeah, it was, I was earning very good money. I was 20 years old and I was earning like 70,000 a year, which, you know, over here in the States is just such a crazy amount of money. It's a, it's a, it's a great amount of money at home too, at that, that stage too, but Australia is expensive. Um, and I was very much keeping up with the Joneses and buying the outfits and all that stuff. It was, you know, I was in the rat race of working for the man and nine to five, all that crap. And essentially what happened was I was doing small acting gigs on the side and I was so burned out working for this firm. Um, I decided to take a, a month or two leave and go and backpack around Central America. And so I went and backpacked around Costa Rica and Panama, came back. I had the best time ever. I was so free, you know, and I grew up traveling a lot, but I hadn't done like my, my parents again were just like, you're going to go to Central America with a girlfriend. Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is crazy. You're 20 years old. And I was like, I'm going, mom. I'm going to go live my best life. So they, of course, were, you know, pretty freaked out. But I came back from that trip and within a couple months said that I'm going again. And the next time I went for three months and I backpacked around Mexico. And I just had such a great time. I was just so free. It gave me time to clear my head, to get up to mischief, not have people to, you know, check in with every day. And I, I mean, I watched the Quicksilver Pro in Puerto Escondido and I just had the coolest, like went to the coolest Rastafarian towns, met some incredible people. My husband says I lived with the cartel. I don't know if I did to this day. <laughs> I ended up meeting some Mexicans that were at my age when I was in uh, Playa del Carmen and my dollar would go so far that when we'd go out of a nighttime, I'd be like, I'll get the drinks and all of this. Well, when I was leaving there, they said, we're from Guadalajara. When we go back, come and stay with us, mi casa su casa. And I was like, okay, I'll think about it. And I was over in Puerto Escondido and the girl that I'd been traveling with, we were kind of getting on each other's nerves a lot by this stage. It was close, you know, getting up to two months. And she really wanted to follow the Gringo Trail and follow all the other, tour the Gringo Trail is the tourist trail, like everybody, all the Americans, all the English, all the backpackers follow each other from backpacker place to backpacker place. And I really just wanted to meet Mexicans and hang out with Mexicans and just have like that proper experience. Me in my 20 year old mind frame, having no idea of the situations I'd put myself in, but I was very fearless. Um, and so I told her I wasn't going to go with her down to Guatemala with the rest of them. And I had got a plane to Guadalajara and ended up getting picked up by their friends there and they had a Hummer and a Maserati and they brought me to auntie's Jeez. house. Yeah. They brought me to auntie's house and I stayed at auntie's house for the next, like, it was like six weeks. I was meant to stay for two weeks and I stayed for about six. I had a maid that cooked and cleaned for me. What'd you do for six weeks? I partied my butt off. I learned, okay, so like they all were very wealthy Mexicans and they all knew English, but they never got the opportunity to that to use it and so they loved me being there they they but I'm not making this up I had so many friends and by the end of this trip I was thrown like a town goodbye party there was about 300 people there they would invite me over to their uncles and aunties houses they 
real party for me about two weeks into being there. People I never knew, had never spoken to before. They had food trucks, like so much money these people had. They lived in gated communities within gated communities within gated communities. Ridiculous. Anyway, and so they just loved me. I was like the token Aussie and my mum was like, we're not getting used to this. (laughs) So I ended up, I was meant to leave there and go at the last stop of my trip was hanging out with some of my friends in San Diego. They were at San Diego State. And Aeromexico or one of the airlines that I was meant to be flying on went bankrupt while I was over there and the flights had skyrocketed. And I had about $800 Australian left in my bank account. I could not afford this flight. And I did not want to hit my parents up for money because I was very proud that I had gone over there, paid for it all myself. And so this is me being stupid and I would never do it now, but me, you know, having no idea of my surroundings, I was like, all right, so I can get a flight into Tijuana. And then, I can Holy shit. and then I can get a bus across the border and then they can meet me in San Diego. And so I booked a flight into Tijuana. I flew into Tijuana. I get on the bus and there's this guy sitting next to me. He called himself a cholo, which I later found out is like an American Mexican. And um, he goes, where are you going dressed like that? And I go, um, San Diego. And he said, the bus doesn't stop there. It stops before the, before the gate. We have to walk. And so uh, it all like hits me at once. Oh my gosh, I'm actually going to have to walk through the streets of Tijuana. My parents don't know where I am. They think I'm flying into San Diego. I, because I'd been in a city this whole time, I was like so disconnected to my reality. I had a little dress on and wedges with my little suitcase. Oh my God. And he said, you're going to stay with me and like, do not talk to anyone. Do not look at anyone. And I was like, okay. We get off the bus and start walking and the howling and everything just began straight away. And I swear I could hear my heart beating in my ears, like thumping, like I thought I may die here. (laughs) And I remember when I saw the US guard, like as I was like walking up closer, it was like, I finally get to the gate and he said, welcome to the United States of America, man. And I was like, thank God. And I like grabbed him and came in. My friends from college were on the other side of the gate and they were like, what were you thinking? That is the stupidest thing. I was like, oh, well, I'm going to have a good story to tell. Let's just be grateful that I got through a lot. Oh, my gosh. Oh, my God. Yeah. So anyway, back to the story. I got home to Australia after having this incredible adventure that I somehow survived. And I got on the train going into work and I looked around at everybody and it was like Groundhog Day and I could just see these people binge drinking all weekend, now going into work, hates his life, looks like he cheated on his wife, hates himself. Like everybody was just so sad and miserable and I just went, this is not going to be my life. And I went in and I quit that day and enrolled in a conservatory of acting and then did my conservatory of acting at the New York Film Academy, moved to Queensland, did that, and then eventually moved to the States. And it's a much bigger story than that, but that's essentially, um, yeah. So whilst you're in Australia, yeah. never, never had the opportunity to hunt? So there's a good story there. So I grew up riding dirt bikes. I could probably ride. Yeah, because you have a farm out there. You have a farm with cattle, yep. probably had a bunch of, bunch of animals running around it. Yeah, we did. Um, And my dad hunted when he was younger. And then, so as you probably know, the Australian government in the 90s abolished a lot of 
guns and regulated Correct. it a lot differently after the Port Arthur massacre. Mm-hmm. So, um, so my dad didn't hunt after that, and I grew up so I could ride a Pee Wee fifty before I could ride a normal bike. Like we, that's we were just like little hooners hooned around the farm. But I had no one to teach me how to hunt, and I had a boyfriend um, when I was in my early twenties. This is around this time. And he hunted and he was in the army and he was a rifle hunter. And I asked him to teach me how to hunt. And he said, it's not a place for women and you're not going to find a bloke that will. And so, yes. And so that was my experience trying to get into hunting in Australia. Um, And I didn't know any girls that hunted. It's definitely not like now I know a fair few, especially pig hunters. Um, But it's a different, it's a totally different beast at home. Um, yeah. If you don't have access to it, it's very hard. Um, and so when I got over here, and I, I, so my husband Zach got me into hunting seven years ago, and um, he said to me, and that's why I'm really passionate about, you know, helping the barrier to entry myself because a lot of people, if they don't have somebody to take them, they just don't even know where to begin. Um, and so he said to me, do you want to go on a turkey hunt? And I said, yes, absolutely. And so we drove up to Nebraska and him and his friend, A, they taught me gun safety. I didn't grow up with any of it. Do you know what I mean? So it was really starting like a little child from the very beginning. They taught me gun safety. They taught me how to hold the gun, all of that. Um, and they then that afternoon called in two strutters. 500 yards across the sand hills in Nebraska. I had never heard calling before. I'd never been around any of it. It was the coolest thing to me. These two birds came in. I shot them at, shot one. I missed the second, but I shot them at five yards, but hidden behind a little mound. So this thing literally first time experience gobbled in my face. I shot him. After that, we t- I'm in the adrenaline, just the addiction of the adrenaline straight away. Um, and then what they did was, which I, which is what every hunter should do when they, you know, introduce somebody into hunting is they brought me through the entire field to fork, building, field cleaning experience. And we ate the turkey afterwards and had like the whole fellowship of it. And for me, it was like, oh my gosh, there's this whole side of like world and life that I have missed out on. There's this whole world that's just going on every day and I've had nothing to do with it and this is crazy like everybody should know about this you know I just it was the it was the coolest thing it was like the first time for a little kid going to Disneyland or something I just felt Mm -hmm. like how how have I not known that this was right here the whole time yeah so um that's how it started and then I just you know like people say it's an addiction it was for me and I just have been hooked ever since so you you come into this game yeah called hunting as a female you know, what are your first impressions of females in the industry? Is it a positive impression? Is it a negative impression? So when I came in, um, it was around the time where the social media influencer thing was really big and we're coming out of it now, thank goodness. Um, but it was around the time where promo codes and girls sitting on coolers half naked in camo and a side of I think um a side of the industry that to me was just 
lacking authenticity and grit. And um, I, you know, when I, when I got into hunting, I said to Zach, I want to learn how to do everything so that I know what I'm doing. Um, you know, and of course I'm always going to lean on you when I have questions and need advice, but I want to be able to be capable to, you know, go and shoot a turkey by myself or sit in a tree stand by myself and all of that. And so I was really looking up to the, you know, Tiffany Lukoski's and, um, you know, Nicole Reeves, who to me, they, those two women in particular have been, um, wonderful. Like I, I met them pretty early into getting into hunting and, um, they're absolute badasses. They are completely capable. Now I'm not saying that their husbands don't help them a lot and I'm sure that they do. Um, but they are very capable women. And so for me, it was like, okay, I got into hunting and my husband was able to kind of give me some direction on who the females were as well. And then I kind of went through and looked at like, what, how do I feel when I would look at her, her photos and videos? How do I feel when I look at her stuff? And I just knew for me, um, I've never been somebody who's all about showing my skin. I'm, I am a Christian and that's not me being like a Bible basher or anything like that. Like I just, I'm, I am, I'm pretty conservative. Um, and that I just wanted to find women that were very much about hunting, learning, sharing the sport, people I could learn from. And it wasn't like sexualizing the sport. <laughs> so, um, which is, which is unfortunately a very common place yeah. in the woman's side of things, unfortunately. And I think, I think a lot of girls do that as a, as a way to get into the industry and, you know, and then, and they probably don't know that there's any other way to do it. And it, it is hard. It is hard being a female in the industry because at the end of the day, it still is a male dominated sport for thousands and thousands, millions of years, men were the hunters and women were, you know, the ones looking after, looking after the children and picking berries and all of that. And that's just how it's been. So like, I think, I think an uh, anthropological study just came out that, um, that showed that women were in the hunting fraternity. Well, there you go. 10, 10 20,000 years ago. There you go. Um, and there were some guys that were berry pickers. So There you go. Yeah, I mean, look, I'm, I have never had a problem with um, trying, to, try, trying out new challenges that are in male-dominated areas, but if I'm not capable of doing it, I'm also okay with, you know, putting the hat down and saying it's all right. If I can't lift something that my husband can lift. I don't have anything to, do you know yeah. what I mean? But no, sure, sure, sure. Yeah. But, um, but in terms of, you know, getting in, that's kind of where I've always stood with, um, with getting into the sport. And I, you know, also very early into me getting into hunting, just because I had a social media platform, I had young girls messaging me about hunting. And so I realized, okay, regardless of how much I know and how experienced I am, people are still going to look at me through social media. So I was very aware of that and that regardless of my um, experience level, I'm still going to be a role model for somebody just because I have a social media platform. And so I very early on had little girls coming up to me. So that's kind of like, I, you know, I'm, I was looking at the long-term projection. If I've got a little girl, who are the women that I want them to look up to and just you know, that's kind of how I, how I've always been. And so the girl, the women that I connected with early on, I'm still friends with them. And I agree that they're still great role models, mothers, Mm -hmm. um, Mm -hmm. 
So we have very strong, authentic conversations in this podcast. Mm -hmm. Open, honest, through and through. So the only the only knowledge that I had of Mary O'Neill yep. was for love and likes. Yep. Tell me about that. Was that just a like you trying to get more more in more likes, dare I say? More engagement, or was that what was the deal there? Because I've had I've spoken to a couple of females that have been in there, they're like, holy shit. So first of all, I knew Matt before going on the show. And he and Matt is a challenging personality, but I also I I knew him well enough to be able to tell him what I would and wouldn't do. So my goal going into it was to change the show up from how it previously had been. And if you watch our season, very different to any other season that had been. I wanted to be the girl that was actually shooting a compound bow because I don't shoot a crossbow. So I was the only one that was shooting a cross, uh, compound bow. And so I competed with all the other girls in the challenges with my, with my compound bow, uh, which is not fair, but I did. I also changed, there was a lot of really ridiculous marketing around it, like in the video advertisement where he wanted the girls to walk in and take selfies of themselves. If you look at our season, he's taking a selfie of himself and we're all standing at the camera. I refused. That we changed the entire script up. The season became about highlighting God and talking about fellowship and about our strengths. And so for me, I, I was like, if I'm going to go in to this season, I want to be able to change it in some way that is positive and show him um, maybe the direction that he's going is not the right direction and we can change it around a bit. And so if you go on to that season and watch it, you will see all of that. Um, yeah. Girls really put their feet down and tried to really be taken seriously. Um, yeah. So that's why I went on that. I also thought it would be really great if I could uh, harvest a big buck with my compound bow against the girls with the crossbows. But turns out it's not a fair fight. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think? And, and the re I, I set that up purposely because yeah. we always have to think about questions like what we do in the social media space. Does it help or hurt hunt? Does it help or hurt our image? Yep. And I'm not really in the love and likes world. And I know that there's been a, you know, a lot of the females that were on it, maybe even you caught a lot of flack, uh, mad a lot as well. I don't think that that, that, that thing, the sphere of whatever it was, I don't think it goes beyond the hunting community. I don't think it has any effect in the non-hunting space or the anti-hunting yeah. space. I, I don't think any of that stuff matters. Yeah. Um, but it does have an impact on, as you said, the people that look up to you. Right. The people that look up to quote-unquote influencers. Yep. And go, oh, that's what she is going to do. That's what she's showing. That's what she's portraying. That's what he's portraying. That's what he's doing. Yep. And so I need to do that because yep. I want to be a hunting influencer. So 
if anybody ever, firstly, I didn't actually get flack from anyone who watched the show. I didn't really get any flack because people watched it and saw what was going on. And I was very much to camera saying, I don't agree with Matt on this and was very bold in my statements. Um, so I, yeah, I didn't, I, I actually made a lot of, uh, I don't really like the word fan. I think it's disgusting because I'm not above anybody else, but I did grow my greater community from that. And with a lot of younger girls who then came and met and hung out at the next NWTF convention. I definitely agree how you portray yourself. You have to be, you have to have a reason behind everything that you do. There's a saying that I try to live my life by as best as I can, which is what is your yes really worth if you never say no? Um, and so be specific and about and intentional about everything that you do. And so, yeah, my reason for going into that was to try and change what he had been doing and show him he could go in a different direction. And for the people that were watching that, that you know, it's a big platform. You can make a difference on a platform like that. There's a lot of sure, young girls sure. watching that. The concept of what he's doing is not a bad concept. I just think that he could go about it in a different way. I get the concept. Are you doing it for the love of hunting or are you doing it for likes? Okay. We all ask ourselves. Which is, which is the whole, which is, again, if you take a step back, like yeah. you're, what you're saying. Yeah. You would hope. Yeah. And that the hunting industry people who are pushing product, constant marketing, constant quote unquote influencing. Yep. Are doing it because they love it. Yeah. Not because they're looking to make more money. Well, and also you need to remember, like what I said before, when I went on this show, it was not, I mean, a couple of years after I got into hunting, but it was still very much when the, uh, the influencer was, it was an interesting shift from what it had been because my husband grew up, uh, sorry, his career was in outdoor TV where everything was like mainstream marketing, all of this. And then in came the, you know, the influencer and it changed the space for a long time. And this was, it's, I mean, it's come out of it now. I think people realize, A, it, there's not a crossover in, in product and money. And it's literally sleazy dudes liking your photos that have families. Like there's not, it's, it's actually not the engagement that you want. Um, but that's, this is around the time of that. And so yeah. it was very much relevant, the question. And some of the girls that were on the show were very much relevant to that space. So, yeah. I think, I think the question is still relevant today. I'm interested to understand from you, what, what do you think we've moved out of? You keep, you've said it twice now that we've moved out of this this the influencer model um, what do you mean i think that the pandemic was great okay so so the influencer model was very much like a lot of a lot of brands for a while uh instead of going with not necessarily hardcore hunters but authenticity people that had legitimacy were going with influencers that just had a huge following on social media. And so that's where they were throwing their product and money. Um, but it wasn't necessarily authentic or real or, you know, and so that's where, that's where it was for quite a few years. 
I think the pandemic changed that. And I think that a lot of people want to go back to sportsmen and women that they can actually learn from, relate from, and respect. Um, and so that's what I mean by there's a transition out. And I can see that with the brands that we couldn't work with. And now I'm seeing them work with us or with our friends or whatever. There's just, it's the pandemic meant that the pandemic caused people to really crave authenticity. Um, because we're all, we were all in this terrible thing together. And it was like, I cannot deal with this fake life online <laughs> when I'm stuck at home and I can't pay my bills and what, you know what I mean? So uh -huh. yeah. Well, it, you know, it's somebody, somebody couched it to me like this the other day. It's like hunting today, the hunting community today, you have people that, and even from a hobby perspective, it's a 365 hobby. It's a 365 job. Yeah. 20 years ago, 30 years ago, you didn't, that was unheard of. Very, very few people, you know, used it as a career. And more often than not, people were using hunting as a hobby. Oh, white sale season. Okay. We're going to hunt, you know, a dozen times. Yeah. And then we're going to hang up our stuff and we're going to forget about hunting. Maybe we'll do a couple of, couple of days of turkey hunting. That's about it. But now, you have people that, like their hobby, they live and breathe it. Yep. They are fitness fanatics. Yep. When it comes to hunting, right? Even I had this discussion, you know, people, you've probably heard of, you know, people complaining about the amount of hunters in public ground now out in the West and Colorado and it being saturated and whatnot. So I'm like, I don't think it's, I don't, I don't think the numbers have changed. I think that people are just more capable. Yeah. They're more capable because of apps and, and maps and all that kind of stuff. Resource. But they're also more capable from a fitness perspective. Yeah. You know, the whole mantra of just go two miles in and you'll get rid of 90% of the crowd, that's not true anymore. No. You're getting maybe 30% of the crowd gone. You've got to go eight miles, 10 miles, 12 miles. And even then, you've still got a couple of percent with you because these guys have been training all year for it. Yeah, yeah. I, we were, we, uh, two years ago, hunted elk um, in Colorado and we went six miles in on the side-by-side. -side. You could only either walk it, horse it, or side-by-side -side it. And then we hiked to 11.5 and we literally came across hikers like that day. Yes. And I was, and, and the worst kind of hikers, night hikers. What? What are night, night hikers? hikers? They hike of a night time. I thought it, I thought there were elk moving around us. No. What? There was a man going for a hike with his spotlight. No, he was that, not. That's serious. Yes. And they had cow calls. I'm not kidding you. What were they doing? I don't know. Were they anti-hunters? Ruining our hunt. <laughs> they probably People spotlighting at night, walking with a spotlight at night and blowing a cow call. Yeah. Yeah. You sure it wasn't elk? No. Do elk wear spotlights on their head? <laughs> we went, we hunted the next day and there was two two ladies, two little hikers with their little elk cow call, calling elk. And we were just like, this is, how is this possible? And then the weather changed and a torrential storm was coming in and we were surrounded by dead wood. So we had to hike back down. It was the worst hunt of my life. 
Unbelievable. Yeah. Have you been back to Australia and hunted Australia now that you are a hunter? Yes. So. I was about to say, I thought I saw a big old buffalo on the Yeah. On the so that was last year. Um, Who'd you hunt with? Uh, Carl Goodhand. Okay. Yeah. He's got one of the biggest outfits up there in Northern Territory in Darwin. Oh, well, Kimberley's. Um, yeah. But that was, I mean, bucket list hunt for me. And it's crazy because you can really see how all the land was connected once upon a time when you're in that part of, we were hunting on Arnhem land. So for anyone who doesn't know what that is, that's indigenous land that you can only access with an indigenous person that has permission. Um, And it was being an Australian, it was so phenomenal to get to see a side of my country that I've never, I mean, no one gets to see that unless you have that opportunity. Um, And we had to, you know, create pathways to get back to where we were camping. It was so wild. Um, and the Indigenous guide that was with us, you know, at the end of it, he he told us that the old people um, had welcomed us in there and he knew that because not not a single thing had gone wrong. We didn't have any snake encounters. Nobody got hurt. We had three gigantic buffalo uh, shot in two days uh, on that hunt. And, like, my husband's hunt, Two giants, like 20-year-old plus d- giants in the same paddock, like not even a paddock, it's the wetland, together, which is unheard of. These guys don't hang out together usually, but they were cruising together and it was just the coolest experience of my life. Seeing a water buffalo going under the water, blowing bubbles, that more ducks than I've ever seen in my life. It was just so special, but it looked like the Lion King. It looked like South Africa to me. Like I haven't been to South Africa before, but I, that's what I imagined South Africa to look like. And it was just insane. It was the coolest experience of my life. Uh, we found, well, he found our indigenous guide captain. You guys can go back and watch this country outdoors, uh, adventures 23. It was last September. Oh yeah. September. He found, um, how do you say it? Hylogrific, hylogrific, it's the term for the oldest indigenous artwork. I think it's highly yeah, yeah, yeah. million, million year old indigenous artwork. It was, eh, eh, he eh, just eh. found it. Every morning nice. he'd go up to the rocks and talk to the old people and he'd go looking around to see and he'd come back and say, I can't see anything. And eh, on our third day there, he said, come and see this. And it was just, yeah, the coolest. Yeah. Hieroglyphics, hieroglyphics. Hier- yeah, there we go. Yeah. Um, yeah. That's amazing. I'll tell you, man, I, it was when people ask me, like, what's the best hunt I've ever been on? It's a Northern Territory buffalo hunt. Yeah. Because of, you just are, it's, it's like, turn back the clock on human civilization a hundred thousand years and you're walking through that landscape. There's nobody else around. Yeah. Completely desolate. It's completely dangerous. Everything wants to eat you, bite you, sting you, whatnot. The soundscape is unbelievable. The Australian bird life just makes the soundscape. Yeah. You've got crocodiles in the water that you're swimming in. Yep. You know, you've got all of these big, feral, nasty animals. Yep. And it's just... Wild. It's magnificent. Yeah, it is. It is just like nothing else and it needs to be protected because, I mean, the world is just exploding. Everywhere you look, there's less national parks less greenery and i think that to myself so often like this needs to be protected um because it's just insane so i ended up shooting that water buffalo at 30 yards 
and I was standing in water where there had been like a 12-foot croc a few days before. I thought to myself, like Zach and Carl were like, you should get back. And I was like, if I'm going down, I'm going down getting eaten by a crocodile in Australia. Like this is it. I will go down being the most Aussie hunter ever. Oh, my God. (laughs) um, But it was just so cool. And I didn't even care. It was just like, you're here. Do it. Be in the swamp with the crocodile. Shoot that water buffalo. It was so cool. It was just phenomenal. It was the w- most wild. Wild is the only word that I can use for it because it's just untamed yeah. and beautiful. Untamed. I was about to just say untamed. Yeah, wild, wild brumbies, um, like d- ducks, pigs. Oh my gosh! I shot a pig that had the biggest tusk. The pigs there, the funnest spot and stalking ever. I mean, you can like. They're everywhere, millions. It's just so fun. We hunted without shoes on, just barefoot through the mud. It was just so. Yeah, the guides there. I remember my guide. He would he would hunt barefoot. Yeah, yeah. And then he'd put sandals on, and his sandals were his go faster shoes. (laughs) (laughs) We're gonna go into rocks, and he needed to go faster in the rocks. Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, so that's probably. And then we, you know, of course, went for a swim in a billabong and all of that. And it's just yeah, just incredible. That was definitely um, top of my bucket list of things that I wanted to do. And so now I'm like, okay, what's next? You know, I'd love to do, I'd love to hunt moose in Alaska. That's probably my next bucket list hunt. Um, Obviously a little more expensive. So. Yeah. So today you are doing hunting, but you're also doing a bunch of singing too, right? So I'm a host, actually. I started Country Outdoors. So when I I moved to LA and I lasted about three months in LA before I believe God told me this place is going to change you for the worst if you stay here. Um, I could eh. feel my moral compass needing to shift into somebody I didn't want to be if I stayed there. Um, aside from anything else, it is just a dirty, dry cesspool. Um, and no trees. If you're, you know, I was a struggling actor working in a hostel, scrubbing toilets and going out for auditions. I was doing the whole rogue actor thing. Um, and I couldn't make any good friends. It was just a really tough experience. The catalyst of me leaving there was, uh, I was walking down Sunset Boulevard with an actor friend of mine and there was a junkie and he was bleeding profusely out the back of his head screaming for help. And I turned to my friend and I said, we need to help him. And he said, it's not your problem. And I looked at him and said, it's never anyone's problem, is it? And that, that mentality is essentially what made me end up leaving LA. I was so sick of just people not giving a damn about anybody but themselves. I ran up and helped this guy. He was screaming for help. He was walking into traffic. I'm trying not to get blood on him. The whole thing was blood on myself. From him, the whole thing was very chaotic. I eventually flagged down some people an hour later after people running by me saying, can't help, sorry, got places to be. Like no one would give me their phone to call an ambulance. Um, Like the worst of worst of mankind that you can see. And then I eventually called the police and they came and the ambulance came. They got my story. They pat- started patching him up on the side of the road. They sent me on my way. And then I got back to the hostel and I was reflecting on it all and was just like, why didn't they take him to the hospital? 
And it just bothered me so much, you know, yeah. I was like, well, cause he's a junkie and he's going to die anyway. And, you know, and I, that was essentially when I was just like, if you stay here, you will be making a deal with the devil for your career. I really, truly believe that I would have had to change who I was as a person to stay there and have success. And I could have done it, but I would have been giving up my soul. Um, something kept just drawing me back to Nashville. And so I had about 600 bucks left in my bank account. And I was either going to go back to Sydney with my tail tucked between my legs or go back to Nashville and just see what, 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 what is this thing that's telling me to go to Nashville? Um, and so I went down there and my first day down there, it was June. But for anyone who knows the South, it's bloody hot. And it was, yeah. And it was a hundred barren. And I'm walking through 12th South. I didn't have a car. I'm walking everywhere, broke. And I walked into this cafe and I asked this girl for directions and she gave them to me. And then as I'm walking away, she goes, stop. She turned, she filled up a jam jar full of water and said, take this for your walk. It's really hot outside. And it was just like that penny drop moment where I was just like, this is different. There's something different about this place. People care about each other. It was yeah. generous. It was just like polar opposite experience to what I was having in LA. And I loved country music. I'd been there before for CMA, um, for the country music festival. And so I went back to Sydney and just started having conversations with people. And I was like, if that's what it's going to take for me to be an actor, I'm not going to live in LA and that's not what I'm going to pursue, but I am a really good entertainer. And from what I can tell, there's no females that are presenting or hosting in country music that are Australian. So I'm going to be the first. And so I started up a platform and I would fly back and forth from Sydney to Nashville every three months, interviewing on camera as many people as I could, flying back, having them well-produced, and I'd put them onto a website and send them to anybody that I could, hoping one day somebody would see them. And eventually the country music channel in Australia picked them up and said, do you want to be our red carpet host for the international award show? And so my, you know, that was like the first thing, first opportunity. And then it just kind of went back and forth like that. And, you know, I eventually got to, I got to interview Jason Aldean um, at that award show. And then next time I went to Nashville, my connections just kept growing and growing. And so for years I did that. I was so broke, like <laughs> beyond broke. Uh, my family thought I was so insane. I had given up, you know a buzzing career in corporate to be, you know, broke, eating bread, flying back and forth from Australia, doing interviews. Um, and it eventually just paid off. And, you know, it's the, like with hunting, same thing, persistency. Consistency, grit, and being good at what you do. The best advice my, someone has ever given to me, and it was my acting coach, he said to me, there's a million girls out there trying to be the next Angelina Jolie, the next Scarlett Johansson, be the next Mary O'Neill, learn how to be the best version of yourself, keep learning new skills, hone in on what you have that is quality and be the best version of yourself that you can be. And that is something that I've always kept. It's helped me not get jealous of other people's success because they don't have what I have and vice versa. Be happy for other people when they have success learn what you're good at and be bloody good at it. Mm -hmm. so when I got into hunting, 
my next step was, well, how do I put these two loves of mine together? And Mm -hmm. an opportunity arose with the outdoor channel and I'd built that relationship there. And that a lot of that actually did come from doing that show. Um, I made the most of that opportunity from Mm -hmm. that show and uh, really wanted to be a spokeswoman for, you know, encouraging women to get into the sport. And so when that came around, they said, hey, we've got this idea to do a podcast interviewing country music artists about hunting and fishing. And we think that you'd be a great host for it. And I was like, there you go. And so that's where Country Outdoors started from and evolved into everything that we have now. But it was, yeah, very much a story of not, don't give up. Even when you're broke, something's going to click at some point and be persistent and be good and treat people well along the way because it really does come back to you. It doesn't even, you never know, don't, you, it's the saying, don't bite the hand that feeds you. You never know who you're going to be working with in the future. And if people treat you badly, be courteous and gracious about it because you never know what is going to come in the future. And I can't tell you how many people told me that I would never make something of myself. And I've just been able to sit back and smile to myself in private, knowing that they know they were wrong. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. 100%. Well, if anybody wants to check out more of what you do, countryoutdoors.com is probably the best place for them to peruse it, right? Yep. Country Outdoors is the best spot and our episodes air every week or bi-weekly um, th- all throughout the year, outdoor channel, YouTube, social media, Instagram, all of that good stuff. So. Yeah, and on the website is the Australian bow hunting of the buffalo. Yes. I see it right here. Yes. Well, Mary, you know, hopefully, uh, I don't know if you attended last year, but SCI is in Nashville. Yep. End of January. Um, we'll be in town for the whole week. So hopefully maybe our paths will cross. And I will be there. I'll see you there then. Fabulous. That's awesome. Perfect. We'll have to grab a beer. Oh, for sure. Many, maybe, probably a couple. Yeah. It's just a heavy, heavy, hectic show. Yeah, awesome. Uh, but I appreciate it. I appreciate uh, Nick DeCastro connecting. Yes, for sure. Thank you, Robbie. It's been great. Yeah, big shout out to Nick and big shout out to you. And um, yeah, thank you. Thank you. Don't, you're welcome. You're welcome. Well, that's it for today. Appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting. Pursuing wild game in wild places. Tune in to Hunt Stand Presents Saturdays at 8.30 p.m. Eastern. Waypoint TV, the destination for outdoor entertainment. I'm Will Cooper, and you're listening to Hunt Stand's Make Your Mark podcast on the Waypoint Podcast Network. Stick around as I bring you more stories and interviews from veteran hunters and industry professionals who inspire us all to be better equipped in the woods and in life.